Coopcast, episode 12. Hey Kooks, are you learning how to surf? Then you know how the journey is endless. But do you know what a kook is? Well, there's many things that you can do to receive that label, like calling yourself a surfer and not knowing who Tony Caramonico is. You don't have to admit it out loud, but after listening to this episode and getting to know some more about Tony, you'll be a little more justified in calling yourself a true surfer. If you've ever cooked it, or just like to laugh when other people do, stick around. This podcast is just for you. You're probably realizing by now, us surfers love to spot a kook. But don't get your knickers in a twist and contemplate whether you should quit or continue learning, because we all kook it at some point. So hang on to your foamy and get ready to learn. The Kookcast is here to lead you on your journey out of kookdom, one story at a time, and hopefully offer you some traction on this slippery slope between kookery and killing it. I'm your host, Coach Chris, from the Surf Coaching and Education Program, The Surf Continuum, where I work personally and virtually with all kinds of surfers to cultivate proper technique, fundamental skills, and education on how to read waves so you can surf for life. Tony, thank you so much for having me. I feel honored. And we just got to see uh, a bunch of boards you showed me. Well, let's, let's, I just want to like rattle off a few that we saw classics, the, the Greg Knoll. Well, we saw several 11 foot 2 inch Greg Knoll uh, balsa wood boards, Those are uh, Jose Angel models, uh, a Velzy Jacobs 1957 uh, wood balsa, uh, over here a 1970 board made for me by Jacobs. That's all balsa. Then I showed you the uh, Joel Tudor boards, mm -hmm. the collection I have, and assorted surfboards in there, you know, from small um, boards from around the world, um, McTavish in Australia, uh, Tony Elterton, Doris uh, from Australia with that gun I showed you, the Badang gun, um, and just pick a board. Yeah, geez, pick well, a board. So. You know, Tony, so those are so fascinating. Tony, Tony Caramanico is a, a surf legend, um, just contributed so much to surfing, so it really is an honor. What I really want to know about Tony is how did you learn how to surf and where? I learned how to surf at Gilgo Beach. Um, I went over with my cousin on a, you know, a little cruiser in the bay yeah. in Amityville, uh, and this fellow called at the time was Jack Johnson, and he was one of the older guys in Amityville, you know, when you're a little kid, the older guys, you know, we kind of went to the beach with them, and uh, they had a surfboard, so I, I remember paddling out at, uh, at Gilgo, and that was my first ride on my knees, paddled out, turned around in the white water, and that was that. Did they give you any tips, or how did, no. nothing at all? So what it, were you basing, like, how did well, you know what to do? Well, we watched, mm -hmm. you know, and okay, I mean, I'm sure they said, you know, that's the front, and this is where the skeg goes, and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> right. but, uh, you know, I kind of had a basic knowledge because I, I was aware of it at that point. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, like 63. So how old were you? I was 13. I just turned 13. 13. That was like kind of the age I started surfing. Yeah. Maybe a little it, it younger. It could have even been a little bit. could have been the summer before, but it's too blurry at this point, And I mm -hmm. really don't have a reference. But in 1963, I know I was already on a surf team. I went that quick. I was working for Beachcomber Surfboards, which was on Main Street and Route 110 in Amityville. Wow. You know the triangle, of course. Yeah, of course. Well, one of the little stores just across from it, one of those little shops, now it was a surf shop, and I lived just um, very close to it at that point, and then we moved to the water. But um, I used to walk there or ride my skateboard, and I had the first Hobie skateboard. I had the first um, Jacob's O'Neill wetsuit, you know, the short John with <laughs> sure. the little... Just when all this stuff, I was privy to watch the whole evolution of this thing. I met Dewey Weber and Greg Knoll and all these people when I was a little kid. Oh, wow. You know, especially the Greg Knoll story. I remember the boss, I was working in the surf shop, and the boss had to go to the bank or something. So I'm sitting there as a little kid, you know, behind the counter and looking at all these spectacular boards because we were the Bing dealer, the Weber dealer, uh, the Greg Knoll dealer, and the Jacobs dealer, all in one shot. Mm hmm and I remember, all of a sudden, right out in front, and it's vivid, cool, black Jaguar sports car pulls up, convertible. Boom. It's Greg Nolan. Boom. It's like, still, you know, it's like, my heart was pounding. Because <laughs> he was like, 
the big wave pioneer, the legend. He was in all the magazines as a kid. It was like you know having Kelly Slater show up or right. something. Like oh my god. So anyway, he saw I was all nervously. He grabbed a couple of um, decals at that point, you know, and he signed a couple and he gave me one. And you know everything was cool. And then the boss came back and I have that. I have that decal in my Greg Knoll page, which is up in the house. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I still have that in my journal when I. In 1980, I, I did a page, a Greg Knoll page, basically. Uh -huh. And that was one of the first ones. And uh, then 20 years later, I got invited to go to the Legends Classic. At that point, I was real serious about competition and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was doing, I was the state champ and longboard and shortboard and did all that stuff and got a little bored with surfing against the same guys and you know, winning trophies and all. And I said, I'm going to break out and see what we can do here. So I ended up going to the Legends Classic in Costa Rica. And uh, before that, a month before that, I won the Brave New World Pro Longboard event in, in, in uh, New Jersey, Brave New World. Then the next month, I went to Costa Rica, and I ended up winning uh, that contest there, the Legends Classic, in front of all the legends, which was way cool. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And so at what, at what point is this now? How, this how is 91. At oh, this 91, point, I was, okay. I was 41 then. Oh, wow. Wow. That's when I turned pro. I was 41. Holy cow. Because I got into longboard in a big way, mm -hmm. and I, I had all the tricks and stuff then. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I won that contest. I came in second in the nose riding division. Then the next year, I went back as a representing Greg Knoll Surfboards, won it again, and won the nose riding, and won the team division. So I, like, swept that year. So then from there... I traveled to um, like France with the Knolls and Japan and Bali and all these. I got reintroduced to Bali. Wow! And so this is all in your forties when this all starts happening. Th that's that that part of it. Right. Okay. You know, at that point, I already had a model surfboard when I, when Greg found me. Mm -hmm. I had it with Phoenix Surfboard Squeak, and then uh, and before that was you know I rode everybody else's boards, whichever team I was on. Did you stay much in touch with Greg? So from the time you met him when you were a kid. And so oh so no, he was just a pet you know he was just, oh I see he came and you, in, have, and you did know who he was though as a oh, kid of course as a kid I already was aware of his presence and who Greg Knoll was mm -hmm. um, and he was still a surfer at that point when I met him then um, years later in ninety one he had stopped surfing in, uh, around nineteen seventy mm. so uh, they invited me to come to Atlantic City Greg and Laura I met him there and then he said hey I want to, I want to do a board with you and I said oh, Cool. Big, big deal. Big deal. So uh, that was in October. In January, we had a board made, which is that black one I showed you mm -hmm. with the stripes. Um, we previewed the board in Orlando. I sold 150 of them. Wow. They were all like standing around in shock because wow. the whole factory we, um, made everybody's boards. Well, I took 150 orders. Um, made everybody's boards, glassed everybody's boards, and they were all in shock because, you know, if you got 30 board order, that was a big deal at a right, show, you right, know, right, right. that kind of thing. So we blew them away so on that one. 150 was just out of this That world. was the order, out, out of the box. Then um, we went to California, had the show board, took pictures with everybody, you know. Because when you're at Greg Knoll's booth, everybody comes by, you know. That's when, you know, little Kelly Slater and stuff would show up, you know, with the big eyes, like, wow, there's Greg Knoll. <laughs> You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. So that was always kind of fun to see that evolution too. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, of course, he's best surfer in the world. But to watch that action and to be around the activity with Greg Knoll was a complete introduction to that whole old boys group mm -hmm. and all the legends. And you basically met everybody. The and, pioneers, the originators. Yeah, you know, and then the next thing I'm staying with Donald Takiyam and Paul Strau, you know. In Oceanside, California, and Donald was going to build our boards, but it just didn't work out. Um, so we had Hank Bizak do them, and Hank is a fantastic shaper. Sure, sure, yeah, we know Hank. Um, so and Hank was originally from New York, so it was a nice fit, and he got into it, and he he made all those boards back then. Then, uh, ten years later, uh, the Greg Knoll thing ran its course. And then Channon always wanted me to come with him when that was over, so I immediately went to Channon the next year which was about 2001, and I did that with Channon for about 10 years, I think, a little bit more. Also with Surf Tech, uh, under the Channon brand. And then uh, eventually, 
I Joel asked me to come on board with him, which was another great honor, and uh, I said, okay, here we go. And uh, it's kind of in those hands now. And Joel will be coming to visit you shortly, isn't that Yeah, and I brought Joel here when he was 16. I remember going for a ride with him in his first car, that kind of thing, when he got, finally got his license. <laughs> the car that Donald Takayama picked out for him was a, like a 62 Chevy Impala lowrider kind of thing. Anyway, I brought Joel here. He sold, and then I, had, I opened a surf shop, and he came for that whole thing. And uh, over the years, Joel fell in love with New York and Montauk and came back many years, and he talks about it, and we became uh, really good friends. Um, mm -hmm. and just so everyone knows, Joel Tudor is uh, kind of responsible for reinvigorating the longboard movement, wouldn't you say? Totally. When uh, everybody looked at longboarding for old guys, and then all of a sudden Joel, some 14-year-old phenom, turned out to be... And I heard people like Steve Pesman from Surfer Journal go, Joel's the best there ever was. You know, he just did everything they tried to do in the 60s and mixed it up with, you know, current moves, which he actually stays away from doing 360s and all that, and all the trick stuff. Yeah. But uh, he's, he brought, and still to this day, made longboarding cool. Right, you know? right. He made it cool for young people, and now, of course, you look at it. And then Joel also started, which... A lot of people don't know. He brought back the mid-range boards. Mm -hmm. As soon as he went through that, he's like, okay. He went to Wayne Lynch and had Wayne come and stay with him. And, you know, even Wayne goes, oh, those things didn't work so well. Joel reinvented the short boards and the first ones mm -hmm. in the barn, the one that he hand-painted and gave right, to me. Right, right. Um, which was in the uh, OP ads back in the day. Um, but Joel brought the mid-length thing back and did all that experimenting. And then everybody kind of woke up and started doing it. And now it's a major part of the surfboard sales. Right. Because well, it's an alternative, so you don't have to ride the generic tri-fin competition type of board. Mm -hmm. You don't have to ride a longboard because these all these cool shapes over the last 40 years until they came back that were very viable. Mm -hmm. say, not 40. From 70s, say to, when did he do that? About 99. For 20 years, there was a void. 25 years, maybe. Wow. There was a void there. And Joel kind of like, okay, let's bring these things back, tuned up the rails, you know, tweaked them like everybody does. And, you know, now there's fishes and midlands everywhere. And also then people finally go, okay, I'll get a longboard. And then they start having fun. And a big part about the longboard thing, which made re reinvigorated surfing, is all of a sudden older guys now can surf with their kids. Mm. And they, they, a lot of my generation, if you will, once Vietnam happened and, you know, um, they got jobs, they got married, had kids. The boards at that point got short and they couldn't, basically, they learned on a longboard, they couldn't get down to those little boards anymore, so they basically gave it up. Mm -hmm. 25 years, 30 years down the line, cool, I can do it with my kids. I got a new longboard, I used to ride these, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. So it brought back that, back into the family kind of situation where, wow, now it's something we can do together. Mm -hmm. Because surfing was pretty much a, a guy's sport, there was women in it, but you know, a bunch of rogue guys, you know, that weren't particularly nice. Did you, did you surf with your family, or were you kind of like... No, I was kind of... My parents really weren't water people. Mm -hmm. They were hard workers. Um, but um, I got into it and lived just on the bay. Just community had about, and... Just went with my friends and it started like that. And then all my friends surfed um, when we all grew up in Amityville. We all lived down on the water in the Great South Bay there. And all of us on the canals, we all became surfers. And that's how that worked. Right, yeah. I actually, so fun fact for the listeners is that me and Tony both grew up in Amityville. Um, so that's, a, that's it's fun because I can really relate to that. And I remember before I was able to drive, me and my buddy Graham and Matt, um, our only way to the beach was by boat. his boat. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it was like, what a blessing for a 10, 12, 13-year-old to be able to get to the beach every day on their own time and not have to rely on your parents. It was so great because I couldn't drive. I was 13, I had a boat, it was 10 minutes from my dock to Gilgo Beach dock. Right. 10 yep. minutes. 10 minutes. You know, old wood boat with a little outboard and you hang on and bounce through the, <laughs> through the bay, you know, that scene. Yeah. And uh, that's how we went to the beach. And then when I was 16, I got a driver's license, but I also got a bigger boat. And I had a little crabbing cruiser, so I used to pull up at Gilgo, get all the team riders and older dudes like Rusty and all those people, mm -hmm. and uh, throw them in my boat and we used to go to Hemlocks or go to Democrat Point. Because I had a cool little... Wow, so cool you guys little, were surfing demo back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. And I remember a situation at Democrat Point. It was my first real surfboard. 
and it was a handmade one, and it was you know something we picked up down the road that someone built, but it was like my first real surfboard, and uh, put it in the boat, went to Democrat Point, and at that point there was a little island in the middle of the inlet. Oh really? Because you couldn't surf Democrat Point, so we we take our boats on the back side of that island, we paddle over to Democrat. But that got destroyed in a storm, but there was an island there, mm. and <clears throat> just a sand island, and we'd park the boats, we'd go across. Paddle Democrat, and I remember the Coast Guard coming up and threatening to shoot our surfboards. <laughs> I mean, we we're little kids. I was like, you know, I don't know. Those I, guys can be so aggro. I might have been 14 or something like that. And, uh, jeez. They were going to shoot our boards, and I was like, in shock. You know, we were all like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, hold your boards, you don't get out of here. That escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we paddled across back to the little while and got in our boat and went surf somewhere else. Yeah, how but, did I mean, you that ever was surf like, there again after that? Oh yeah, Democrat was cool. <laughs> we used to go there all the time when, you know, conditions were right. What, what was the first surfboard you ever owned like? My first real surfboard, the first three I'll go through. One was my uncle bought for me, $5, homemade piece of crap, you know. <laughs> I used to paddle in, in the canal, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Then we got this board I just spoke about that they wanted to shoot holes in. But then I started work, working for Beachcomber Surfboards, and I got a Bing, which I still would love to find that board. It was an 8.7, which was tiny then, was, you know, and I was, I weighed about 30 pounds, I think, you know, that kind of thing. I was one of those little skinny, weak one kids, and uh, had red rails, tail block, a big D fin on it, all black, and it was 8.7, and it was gorgeous, a reverse T-band stringer, and oh, uh, that was my first really cool board. And unfortunately, back then, we only had one board, mm-hmm. you know. How long, I, how long did you have that? I probably had it for a couple of seasons, and then I became a team rider. Um, for beachcombers? For beachcombers. And that was my first board as a beachcomber rider, was that Bing. Then I moved on after beach. I might have had another board, but then I moved on to, uh, to Bungers. And I got on the Bunger team, so then I was riding Bungers. And I have a couple of Bungers in the barn. Um, one with a flowered deck, Persuader. Um, then I went to the Hannon team. Then I opened my own surf shop. I also rode for Hickson Surf Shop in Jacksonville, Florida, where four of the world team U.S. riders were f- from. Where was your surf shop? I didn't know you had a surf shop. My first surf shop was called the Albatross. You know, the Albatross Motel, Bird yeah. on the Roof? Well, yeah. Bird on the Roof was my surf shop with Lee Beeler and David Williams at the time. Oh, wow. David and I opened it up, then Lee came in, we built a restaurant onto it, then we bought the motel across the street. We had that for a number of years, I was 21 years old. It was pretty heady stuff, (laughs) driving around in sports cars and owning restaurants and stuff, was fun. 21, wow. 21. And then, uh, so I rode then, I was on the Hanley, because I represented Hanley at that time, Hanley Surfboards. Uh That's when I got the first fish, directly from Steve Liss. Stuck it on a plane, went to Barbados with it. Um, then after that, I did that for six or seven years. Then I went and lived with Peter Beard for seven years. And that was like the next chapter of my life that was, dragged me away from surfing. I, I gave up competition at that point. I was the free surfer kind of thing. Even when I had my shop, I kind of gave all that up. Mm-hmm. I stopped surfing in contests like in 72. And then I got back into it in 89. When longboard, I got, when longboarding came back in '85, I was kind of like in the tail end of living with Beard, and then in '85 I bought this property we're sitting here. And uh, I remember then I turned pro. I just said, "Fuck this! I'm going to go do. I'm going surfing," and I focused everything. I gave up all the other jobs I had. I even started giving surf lessons back then. Right, and, right. We uh, even did a little surfboard repair, and just basically. Worked for plane tickets so I could travel the world and go wow, to Wow, so it was, like, it was a big leap of faith for you, dude. Yeah. So I did that, and it became successful. I got to travel around and, you know, play Surf Star and all that, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, I got to travel the world, hang out with everybody, and you know, with, in tow with Greg Knoll. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun. And got sponsored in Japan, in Bali. I spent a lot of time in Bali. First time in 1980 with Ricky Raz, but then in... Uh, 99, I went back and staying in a hotel. This guy saw me, surfed with me, saw I was 
getting stuff done right away. And he goes, come and work for me. So I was sponsored by the Mod Surf Company, which was the a surf jewelry company out of Japan, which was massive in Japan. And we actually brought him to the U.S. and I got Joel on the team and Tony Doris, Tony Yelterton Doris. So before you actually made it and cracked into the scene, you... Um you had to. You taught surf lessons and stuff like that just to get yourself in. I, I went to all the surf contests, you know. And I was so positive about what I was doing that I, I focused on getting better instead of just surfing. Mm -hmm. I focused on how to win heats. Mm. I would go out and practice for 20 minutes and catch waves, you know, like I was in a heat. I basically focused on what I had to do. Mm -hmm. Then I mixed it up with a couple of cool tricks like helicopters. and re I was like the king of reverse fin takeoffs. I could just do them on every wave. Oh, wow. You know, literally kind of stuff. And uh, So that was my ace in the hole for the contest. And that mm -hmm. basically always carried me over the edge. And when did, you, uh, when did you start teaching surf lessons? I actually did surf lessons in the um, back again in the early 90s mm -hmm. when That's I had one of my shop because all of a sudden there was a little bit of interest and I, somebody asked and said yeah and, you know back then we were getting fifty dollars which right. was a lot yeah yeah I'm like wow this and is so cool. it was organic somebody just kind of asked you for a little well, I had the shop and then somebody can you teach me I said yeah I'll, I'll help you out so right. I, I did a couple of lessons I didn't go into it like we know now right of course but then I got into it in 99 in a big way I'm very curious about your method or your approach to teaching. I have, like, for myself, I'm very specific. I have, I'm an education major. Right, right. So I care about the structure and the, the how you build someone from ground up and not just riding waves because you and I both know yeah, surfing yeah. is so much greater than just riding the wave. Yeah, and there's so, so much did, to learn. There's so much to learn. So well, I basically I, assess the people first. Mm -hmm. You know, you do, the little, you do your basic stuff on the beach. You assess them. You see how they how they're affected in the water when the wave hits them. You teach them everything basic. And you basically, I always taught them what not to do mm -hmm. and how to stay safe. You teach them all the basics, and then you see if they have the aptitude for it. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are perpetual beginners, as you probably realize mm -hmm. from teaching. And some people just take right off and, you know, like a kid like Noah. You, mm -hmm. know, you tell him something, and he does it. Mm -hmm. He has a natural talent, but he's able to focus. And that's what I did when I got into competition, and I always went to these contests with, I'm the guy to beat, you know, especially in the amateur stuff. I was, I was that positive about, you know, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to do this. You right, know? right. And I was very focused, and I, I did it. And then I said, well, okay, now it's time to take it to the next level. So I jumped into the, the pro status, you know, and that was an eye-opener. Because then I get to, you know, you got to surf against Joel and all the best guys in the world. You right, know? so you surfed against Joel in contests? Yeah, in the same contests. And oh, all wow. And, you know, and... Uh, I did all those contests, pro contests, and, you know, I did the tour for two years, wherever it went. And then it took me all over the place. I surfed in Australia, France, Hawaii, California, Mexico, Costa Rica, um, where did do all you, those things. Where do you enjoy surfing the most? Mm. That's a tough one, because you fall in love with places. Like, obviously, Montauk, because it's home, and you always, you know, your home break kind of thing. Yeah, and you just know it. But um, I did love Indonesia. I do love Indonesia. Um, but I have it. I had that island home in the island of Tobago for 20 years, and I start. I went there in 1975, and I was there three times this year, even though I don't have a house anymore. But uh, it was that special place, mm. and I went there. And the wave was Gaga, so, uh, <laughs> so I stayed there. I put in like 25 years there. Really? That was my Caribbean spot. I'd go to every winter, keep tuned up, and then did the pro thing in between but that was a short-lived that was you know over a decade I did that and then uh, because you know I was able to do it back then and got to travel the world met lots of people picked up sponsors of all kinds I still have sponsors I have an airline sponsor to this day no way yep trade winds aviation <laughs> um, they fly me in the Caribbean and uh, that's amazing. How did you how toes did you, in the nose? Did did you make those connections just by surfing and doing your going on your merry way, or did you pursue them? Um, a lot of them, I, I I got approached, you know, like toes in the nose company. I was said, guys sponsored me. They go, cool, do this. So I was on the team, um, still am. All my clothes. Yeah, yeah, I see um, that. Then I've also had major companies like clothing companies like. Uh, Jay Lindeberg Company, Fine Men's Clothing Wear. Mm -hmm. They put me in their books. They give me clothes. Walk into their shops in New York and 
get all the ex expensive clothes I would never buy. But I'm, sponsors like that, I've had tons of surf company sponsors, board companies over the years, sex wax to leashes to board bags. But plane tickets are a big one. That's a great I, one. I had um, Mod Surf Company treated me very well, and that was out of Japan and Bali. So I'd go to Japan. I did design work for the Mod Surf Company. Just basically, I even had they even had a clothing line with my name on it. So they had we did that for a little while. So cool. Um, and then I pulled in Joel Tudor to come on the team, and they you know basically sent. Okay, we want to go to Australia, so we go and do the Noosa Festival, and we all fly in and, and do the Noosa Festival. So that was a pretty good run, and I was able to fly around the world, uh, surf, pick places to go, surf in the different contests, everything paid for. And then CHP Company in Japan, I would stay with them. They were my sponsor there who did the Greg Knoll stuff, and, you know, you could do no wrong there. I'd go, I'd win the contests, I'd stay with the family, and they were one of the biggest surf families uh, in Japan. There was like seven major companies, and they were one of them. And they represented Greg Knoll. And they sold a lot of surf, thousands of surfboards. Wow. Um, then I was sponsored by Maud, who took me, with both two companies in Japan, they took me to Bali, which their manufacturing was out of. So I got put up in a hotel in Bali. I would sit there for a month and go surfing and surf with all the best dudes. And I was the only longboarder there. So I was a novelty. When mm -hmm. I showed up in Bali, even though I was riding an eight-footer, it was a longboard. Everybody was on there, you know, little shooters. And I'd go down to the end of the road and surf the main beach in the evening and doing helicopters and 360s. And everybody kind of took note, like, mm -hmm. what the hell's going on here? <laughs> What's this guy doing? And... Uh, Boom. Now, of course, it's, everybody's a longboarder there. Not everybody, but it's a big deal. But, you know, I was kind of the only longboarder there. It was wow. wild. And this was like 96, something like that, when I popped into Bob. No, it would have been early, 93. I was the only, only longboarder there. Was it 90? Yeah, I think it was 93. Yep. So 90s, I'm, I'm starting to feel like, like mid-80s to the 90s was big time for you. Big uh, steps taken. Well, yeah, it was like life changing. I went through the, all these business things. You know, I had the the albatross businesses. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I and worked the, for professional Beard. Professional career take off. And yeah, and then I worked for Beard. And while I was doing that, I you know, was a bartender. I had a real estate license. I did other things, but I basically lived up there to surf the ranch, mm -hmm. and I surfed it for seven years. And all those breaks, and I was the only one up there for a little while, and then there was other people that lived up there to surf, but I remember days where I'd have to go find somebody to surf with or I'd surf alone, because <laughs> there was nobody around. But that was a good home base because I was able to travel from there. I could take off for months at a time. And that was the whole key was, like I tell people, if you want to do this thing, you have to be available. Mm -hmm. You have to like be available when there's waves, otherwise you, know, you can't have a real job. Right, yeah, the, the time management of a surfer is so much different than anybody else. Even, you know, uh, people always compare surfing to snowboarding, but even that is so different because... They can make the snow. Right, exactly. They make the snow, the mountain's always there. With surfing, you really have to get stuff done when there's not waves, so when the waves come, yeah. you can just go to it. And you have, have to, to surf all, all the you know, bad days right. to get to be a good surfer. That's such an excellent point, Tony. So yeah. many, you know, I almost get a little fed up sometimes when people are like, oh, it's not good conditions. It's like, well, what are you going to do when there are good conditions? Suddenly surf good? Well, I've seen many a surfer that can, you know, they finally get in really good waves. You know, like you take somebody that surfs slop and they're waiting for the good days and they've surfed a couple of, and you take them to a place like Indo and all of a sudden there's an overhead stand-up barrel that goes on for 150 yards. It's like, that gets their attention. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you have to ride that thing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different, whole different mindset right. because maybe they've never been over Carl before and maybe they've never been in that kind of velocity of a wave. Like, okay, as you know, you know, six-foot wave can be many different. It could be a crumble, it could be a big fat roller, or it could be top-to-bottom shore break killer. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's that type of variables that, you know, people have to experience. It's like big wave riding, which I've never been. I've ridden big waves, but I'm not a big wave rider. So it's never been my forte. And that's due to, I'm sure, is riding the waves I've grew up on. And later in life, it's just like, I can't do it anymore. Mm. It's just too crazy. I drowned. <laughs> well, you know, I'm 68 now, so it's a whole different perspective. I want to do these things that I did 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but 
just, I physically can't do it. And that's kind of like a reality check, you know, at, mm -hmm. at a certain point in your life. But it's very acceptable. I can still do it. But, you know, I got there now and I'm watching kids surfing. Well, you know, I'd have blown them away just a couple of years ago. Right, oh, right. Well, I, you know, but I love your style and I love the Thanks. way you're, you're, you're maturing and aging in, when surfing. It's, your style is still beautiful and smooth and seamless. And that's, that's really what I strive to do because I, I want to be like a longevity surfer. You know, like, do you see these guys? Like, look at John John. Right now, he's out of the water for months and months and months. Airs will break your body. Yeah, and it's yeah, just... They're not going to have ankles. I'm not, I, you know, I can't say it doesn't look cool. I'm sure it's a lot of fun to just huck yourself over the lip a million times. But, man, you know, personally, I just want to do some smooth, basic surfing. I'd rather, you know... And that's why I really look up to your surfing and the way you do it, because you know, that's all like, I want to do. Things like cutbacks and nose riding, you know, that's... That's can, really a great feeling. It's a great feeling. And you can yeah. spend a lifetime trying to perfect that, that feeling mean, through the turn. I remember spending a whole month here. I was in Hawaii, on the island of Kauai, in the spring of 87. I spent a month in Waimea on the island of Kauai. I was surfing this place called Pakalas, which is like an Indo wave. It's mm -hmm. a left. And I remember paddling out, and I see this guy do a reverse fin takeoff. And I'm like... Oh. You know, like, I'm looking around, and no one's even, like, doing I'm going, okay, okay, you know, calm down. <laughs> and I'm, I studied this guy, and I studied how he did it. You know, I, okay, I realized he stood up, switched stance, and he did this. I got back to Montauk, and that, I spent a month on taking off backwards. <laughs> Come hella high water, I took off every wave backwards. <laughs> and I got the feeling. I got the feeling, and boom. Now I could, well, at one point I did it four different ways. I could do it this way, that way, oh, wow. 360s, this way or that way. So it's what I'm getting back to is I was focused to do this. Right. Okay. You watch, you learn, then you have to apply it. So I remember even as a kid, not a kid, as a college kid in Florida, just doing bottom turns. Just right. Just perfecting a, a just proper bottom turn. Exactly. You know, and it's the basics. Breaking it all down. And nose riding always came pretty natural to me. So once I got back on a longboard, I did it as a kid and I was pretty good. It was like... This is easy duty, you know, and I won a nose riding contest, but... I really think, you know, I, it's hard for me to say with, with certainty, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that all of your success and all of your, um, just the winnings that you've, you earned for yourself came back to basic surfing, actually, where the tricks definitely add the cherry on top, but just to be able to do a great bottom turn is not only beautiful, but functional. You need that speed and drive off of the bottom to project yourself and set up the rest of your ride. But the way you take off on a wave, the way you catch yeah. it, how yeah. you paddle even. This That's is surfing in, fundamentals. In competition, you have to, they're all good surfers for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, you have to separate yourself. So being smooth is a great one. Being a good nose rider always helped. But then you got to have a little extra, and that's where the reverse fin takeoffs and the helicopters came in. Yeah, a little pizzazz. <laughs> and if the other guys couldn't do it, Voila, you mm -hmm. have them. You know, and, and the judges, you, know, you get rewarded for that. You know, you take off backwards on most of the heat waves, and most of the guys in heat are already going, oh shit, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so you, know, you seem, you, you, I, I, I'm, I must have realized this, but I, I see it cl plainly now. You're so studious. You really are, you know, focused on what you have to do. So, what is your current um, study? What are you in surfing right oh. now, presently? What, it, what is your aim or. I'm just trying to stand up, <laughs> basically. Now, all my aims in surfing have kind of I fulfilled those, if mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. You know, I was never going to be world champ or anything like that, but I played in the game. I just had fun with it, and I. What I got out of it too is I got to meet everybody who, when I was a kid, I looked up to, and I got to surf with them, hang with them, friends of mine now, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then everybody along the way, like you know, watched Joel Tudor mature into arguably one of the best surfers in the world of all time kind of thing. And so that's been kind of really cool. And I've also to be, to be part of it, also to document it. My mm. journals through my artwork documented. Oh, well, where can, that's great. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but where can people find your art or look at it? Because um, it's beautiful. Actually through me, I'm with, I was with Click Galleries. Um, I'm also with ARC Fine Arts Galleries. But um, they can contact me because I'm always in and out with galleries at this point. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, good to that's, know because the, the work is beautiful and it's, it's historical, it kind of captures... Well, it's, it's my life. Right, right. You know, sitting around in surf breaks all over the world, you gotta do something. And this is before 
internet. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, we didn't even know where the waves were coming from. We'd look at the map and say, well, there's a low pressure, you know. Before all that stuff, so you had to have something to do. I used to play music, but you couldn't travel with drums. So, uh, so can you just describe some of your artwork? How did you, what's the process and, and what goes into it? Because I, I know they're your journals. I travel with a, a, just a business journal that you would keep your ledgers of your business, mm -hmm. a couple of pens, some glue, and uh, a little prep and a little ink set. I mean, uh, a coloring set. And that's my art studio. Very and I can cool. take it anywhere in the world. Yep. And I used to travel with the full, full journals. They were, in, they were insane. I had them all stashed away. Oh, cool. Um, I used to travel with the journals, but I was always afraid of losing them. And at the end of the year, they're this thick and monstrous. I'll show you one upstairs. Sure. Um, so that's, that's what it all boiled down to. I learned that process from Peter Beard, living around him. He was a very productive artist, and it was sort of an outlet. And then I just kept doing it, and now it's almost 40 years. So you journals. would do your piece. It would be a combination of uh, your... My day. Your, yeah, your, your journaling. And I do it every day. And then your and your painting and just little notes and stuff. And how did you get them blown up so big? Did you like scan them and then blow them up or? Actually, oddly enough, Joel Tudor was going to have an art show out here with Michael Solomon and Hi Michael Halsband, who were g great artists. And they knew about my journals. And I had them for twenty years and never showed them to anybody. Oh wow! Nobody knew I had journals. I mean, people knew, but they weren't art as such. Right. They were right. just something I did. Mm -hmm. And so okay. They came to me, they brought me to this um, printer, fabulous artist printer, Warren Padula, who just passed away, unfortunately. And uh, they set me all up. They did my journals. Um, we just did a couple. I did like a first series of a couple of them. And we had a show in East Hampton at a gallery, the, John, uh, the Horowitz Gallery, which was a, a fine bookseller. And all of a sudden, they started selling. And I said, wow, I guess I'm an artist now. Because... Hmm. I'm getting paid. <laughs> and then Christian Sell from Click took me on for seven years, eight years maybe, eight years in St. Bart's. So I, I spent a lot of time in St. Bart's, and uh, that's one of the most successful St. Bart's pages. Oh, wow. But see, that one's from Tahiti. Oh, so cool. But that's what I do, and I still do it every day. Not like that. You, you just so, and you also have clippings, I guess. I just grab like... everything. Mm -hmm. I clip things in there. I write things in there. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's and that's the glue. So it's just pens, glue, and a little paint. Yep. It's, it's so I used cool. to use um, heavy cleaning fluids back in the day to do rubbings when I used to do them with Peter Beard. But they were so toxic, I'm surprised I don't have cancer from it. You know, We used to do them right in here, actually, where we're sitting. The last time I did a rubbing session with Peter Beard was down here, and he was living with me because he got kicked out of his house. So, Tables have turned. Tables turned for a year or so, for a year maybe. And uh, so we would do it right here, but this was called this after-cleaning fluid, and this stuff was brutal. Mm. And we'd close everything up. You know, <laughs> we'd stay up for like, 20 hours or something and do these journals. Wow. You know, do the back, do the pages to like do something on them before you actually get to them because a white page is like horror in my life to see a white page in front of me for that day. is like... <sighs> so um, that's how that works. But yeah, that's taken me to a different level in my surfing because now after doing and being a surfer for all those years and documented, all of a sudden... Gee, now it's in vogue and it's cool because mm -hmm. surfing's cool. Right, well, right. Well, boom. Here we go, kids. So I was able to present something of a body of work that I did because I loved it. And now all of a sudden I can sell it. You know? And That's wonderful. I mean, it's, Congratulations. It's wild because... Uh, it's amazing the, the little... And I still retain the, the actual art. I just make copies, limited edition prints and canvases of them. And they sell for thousands of dollars. So I'm very happy. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so that's been kind of fun. Like, that's one of my fins right there. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, and I just kind of apply that to my surfboards. I do them for art, you know, art exhibits, and I do custom work like that for people. I do custom journals. Like, I'll stick them in my journals, and I do a couple of customs. Very cool. It's just, but it all goes back to being a surfer and trying to figure out how to make a living at it. Right, right. And, you know, so I've done all that stuff which is kind of fun, and luckily I bought this house. Yeah, well, and you've done a really good job of it. It's I think kind of that's, fun. It's, that's surf, it's been... surf Central. I mean, 
you know, for years, if he came to Montauk, he'd come and visit me here. You know, I've had everybody here from Derek Hine, Tom Curran, um, you know, Joel, Greg Knoll, Paul Strau, just lots and lots of people I forget have stayed here. Wow. You know, uh, Tact, Kuji Masada, all kinds of guys. Because Joel would always bring an entourage with him. Uh, Joe Scott, who did the movie Adrift, they did a, a video here. Um, lots of stuff. It was fun. I got to travel with all those guys, too. Where do you see surfing going from here on out? It's, it's hard to tell, huh? Well, it's in major transition right now. How, uh, how do you feel? How, well, how so, I mean? Well, the wave pools. Oh, they yeah. They just exposed it to inland surfing all mm -hmm. over the world, and now they're getting very sophisticated. There's one apparently in Australia now that uh, somebody says, you know, makes Kelly's wave look like kiddie pool. No. And it's one that goes around in a circle. Holy cow. Just keeps wrapping. Like a toilet bowl. <laughs> yep, exactly. And the wave just keeps wrapping around this thing, and apparently it's pretty damn cool. Wow. Um, Have you seen the Texas one? Did you see any media on that? Yes. Not the Northland or Endland, whatever that is? The original is. one. The, the No, the, the Waco or Waco. The Waco one, yeah. I've yeah. seen pictures of and that. And it's, it's like a... I kind of like the way that looks. It's I just kind of a, almost like a standing wave type thing, but it moves, but it's quick. Yeah, well, yeah, it's more like a kind of a beach break, but I, it seems more like ocean-like to me because they send it in sets, yeah. and the reverberations of the waves prior and the, oh, the surfed, pool, it's, it, looks like, uh, it looks more like an ocean. I thing. surfed a wave pool. Did you? I surfed Where? the one at Disneyland. Oh, really? You yeah, surfed, I surfed it with, Don they allow I you surfed to surf it with it? Donovan. Really? Yeah. Um, Billabong had a party, and uh, they invited a lot of people, and... Uh, I grabbed, I was the only longboarder, I grabbed the longboard we were selling at the show, and I went off and surfed the wave pool, and it was the freakiest thing. Because <laughs> you're sitting there, and this is during the, um, the uh, big surf convention down there, and you're sitting there, there's like a thousand people around you, and you're sitting in this pool, big ominous situation, everybody's up online, and you hear, Kajum! You turn around and you go, God, I hope I don't miss this thing. <laughs> and I paddled, I caught the wave, and I stood up, and the depth perception got me right away. I was like looking for the bottom to make my bottom turn. And it's like I waited too long. But I, made, I rode the thing without falling. It was like it was so weird. I, I surfed just two of them that night. And it was like so weird. Wild. I mean, I, now I want to do the, the real wave pools. But yeah, I, I like the aesthetics. I love to go to a little tiny island with palm trees and go surf there. Or some remote place where there's uh, monkeys in the trees and... Cows maybe walking down the beach. Well, that just speaks or to tigers. What we, it's what tigers we in Java. Before. You know that kind of shit. Yeah, it's what we were saying before that surfing is so much more than riding waves, and and that's kind of what wave pools are catering to is just riding a wave. But they give you um, a reason. Surfing gives you a reason to travel to places, mm. and most of the places that you travel to are already have this innate beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Caribbean or Indonesia, which is like still Gaga land for surfing. But even, you know. But now, that being said, I still, I want to give it a test and see for myself. We should, we should do a little trip to uh, the Texas wave pool. I'd like to check that That'd one out. That would be pretty wild. Or maybe you can get us connected with Kelly Slater and I'll, uh, the I'll get Kelly, The Kelly's pool's the one I would surf. That's the one I that I, could have, I, I mean, I'll surf them all. If I, if I put my head to it, I can definitely get there. I mean, my, I have access. Someone called me this morning that has access to that. Oh, really? Oh, you know who it is, Bob. Ah. So oh. he just called me this morning for a wave check. He's in Florida. And uh, he's going to maybe be out tonight. Oh, very cool. But he goes there. He's actually invested in it. Oh, man. Well, Tony, if, you, if I could be oh. so presumptuous, I'm trying to keep get, me in mind. I'm trying to get to go <laughs> do that. That's, you know, you, you could actually go and do that thing. I mean, I know people that rent it. You know, yeah, the, you, yeah, you can rent it, but I was looking at the prices, and geez, it's, oh, yeah. it's pretty expensive. It's way expensive, but it's, it's the beginning. In mm -hmm. 10 years... Yeah, they'll figure be, out ways to be There's going to be beautiful resorts. Right. There's also technology that you can take it to a lake. You put it on the back of a truck. That's right. I saw this technology 20 years ago. Oh, really? It just oh, hasn't just come to fruition. If you are unlimited funds, billionaire kind of character, and you had a lake somewhere on your property, you could set up your own damn wave. Mm-hmm. You know, or in front of your house on some bay somewhere if you have enough enough uh, pole to make that happen. Yeah, I feel like that's actually going to be one of the new products. Is not actually the wave pool itself, but something that you buy to make a wave with and put it in your, your lake or your pond. I mean, or there's a lot of dynamics to make the wave break probably, and it all has to do with the bottom. Right. You know. Right, right, of course. Um, it's all the contours and all, but something has to make the wave. 
Captain, but you know, you watch like in, in any inlet, you watch the boats come through and you watch these little waves peel yep. from the wake. And mm -hmm. So all you need is a little sandbar there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you, you make an artificial one. But yeah, that's all the fantasy stuff. I'd still rather have a beautiful home in front of a surf break myself. Yeah. Instead well, of having a wave pool. I, I, can, I can agree with that. There's something that just, you, you can't beat you know, na nature, you know. I've stayed in my board bag in a car on surf trips or in, <laughs> you know, shacks. And I've also stayed in mansions. You know, it's just, I've, I've done the full circle in that. <laughs> I mean, I've stayed in spectacular homes right on this, where the waves are breaking, where the grass is right there. Wow. Fucking mansion. It's wild. And the spray would hit hit our door <laughs> when the waves were up. <clears throat> Pretty wild. Yeah, that's, that's that the kind of surf experience I like. That liked. was in the Caribbean. Really wild. But yeah, you know, a little shack is fine with me. But the great part about surfing is going to all these places. I mean, I surfed G-Land in 1980. We went and did the first surf camp in the world. We did a TV show on it. I put it together, won an Emmy. And that was Java Surf for American Sportsmen. And Ricky Raz and I went there with, we took Gregory Harrison, who's the actor surfer, and uh, Dan Merkel, the photographer, and we went and a couple other guys and we did a surf show in Java. Wow. We lived in the treehouse you saw up top yep. in, in the photo. And Ricky built the treehouse along with Jerry Lopez. Wow, how's that wave? It was, it was an eye opener. Mm. It was like one of those situations, okay, there it is, now you have to surf it. So, <laughs> And it was pumping. It was 10, 12 foot. It was the best day of the year we got. We spent only two days there. We dragged the film crews halfway around the world. We were in Bali for a number of days. And then, oh, back then you had to go overland. It took a day to get to Java. You had to take ferries. You had to drive in buses. You had to take little boats. Um, it was pretty wild. Um, but we made it. We scored. We showed surfing as it's supposed to be shown. Not a, a contest or some gidget movie mm -hmm. and blew everybody away it was the first surf show they ever had and it was the uh, biggest award-winning show they ever had wow and it was just taking them to a place that they never saw before and give it the exotic feel and it was pretty wild and i did that right out at montauk so i happened to meet the producers and they were younger than i was and i said you guys ever do a surf show and they go no i go well i've got one for you and i showed them the films of the treehouse and the wave at java so we contacted Mike Boyum, who made the first, first place, the first uh, surf camp, and we went there and did a show. Had to get all permits. I mean, it was wild to travel back then. All the visas and permits we needed for the film crews, and you know, it was just shortly after the, you know, Bali had a big, big wars earlier on, and so everybody was still very finicky. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of slaughter in Bali. Bali has a very dark history. Oh wow. Besides being one of the coolest places in the world, especially back then, before now it's totally westernized. The right. waves remain the same, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's completely different now. When I showed up in Kuta Beach, it was coconut plantations and little warongs, little places you'd stay in. Now there's hard rock cafes and big hotels and the hustle. And it's right, of course. Unbelievable. It's, yeah, that western world, we're just spreading like fire. Yeah. It's, That's it's why you, know, you still can go to places that are wild, like the Mandalis. The Mentalis and Sumatra and all those places and Adamant Islands. There's still lots of... Or you can go cold. There's plenty of places to go and surf empty right. waves in well, the cold. That's, that's the new pioneering, right? Is, yep. uh, to you got to go north instead of south. Right. But mm -hmm. that's, you know, I that's feel good. I'm cold enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I really don't want to go up you north. Know, if you're young enough, and especially the way the wetsuits are now, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. You can do it. It's yeah, doable, no, you're, doable, you're totally and the experience right. is totally, would, would make it worth it. Yeah, but, no. uh, there's you know, something about that. The you know, to surf the Iceland and Greenland and you know, Alaska, you know, Nova Scotia's even cold. But yeah, yeah, no, it's freezing, but they have excellent I waves. Might be, uh, actually, I might be going to Nova Scotia in the next month. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Okay. Cool, cool. Flying up there. Wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. That's another one that I've been to wanting to do. That. that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Wonderful. It's close, but it's so far away. Uh-huh. But I've surfed everywhere from Maine to Miami on this coast. And I've surfed from Santa Cruz to Baja, Tipa Baja. And all over Bali. I spent a lot of time in Bali over the, in the 90s, months at a time. It was fun. 
Uh, just a legend that's contributed so much to surfing. Tony, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate all this, this rich history and information you have. And I guess I'd like to leave off with, as one surf legend and instructor and, and just professional with imparting surfing to other people, what advice do you have for me as a surf instructor and, and a surfer trying to do something similar, not exactly what you do, but just trying to make it in surfing and in the world and, and, and sharing it with the others? I would say stay true to what you're doing and focus on it. Like you found your little niche, you know, you can, you can blow up or you can control it, mm -hmm. keep it small. Like that's why I never wanted to go to do the surf school. Mm -hmm. Corey asked me to do the surf school way back when. I said, I said that's too much of a headache. I mean, it sounds great. Lots of that, but uh, it's a big responsibility. It kind of took away from what I was trying to teach. That becomes like a, a meat market, you know, just mm -hmm. let's make another sandwich kind of thing and just get yeah. it out there. Very and, corporate. You know, I taught a lot of beginners, and, but it was always one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't surf schools, and I prefer to do that. And I've had great successes on some of these kids like little Zach. Zach, um, he surfed great. He was, he was in the U.S. championships every year, a kid that lived in Harlem. But he was able to focus. Mm -hmm. He had the right thing. If he, God forbid, if he surfed all the time, he would have been fantastic. Right. But uh, kids like that become like now Noah, little Noah. Yeah, I saw you working with him the other day. It's just that's a pleasure. Like I don't mind doing that kind of stuff. Right. But um, just got to stay focused. You got to keep taking the opportunities as they come. You know, like you now you're doing your your podcasts, photography or whatever, and uh, there's plenty of people to teach to surf. And also. You know, those wintertime surf vacations, if you get, if you have good uh, clients, they come and visit you. I do that still. I have clients that visit me uh, in the Caribbean in the winter. Mm -hmm. And that kind of keeps it going, too. So I will absolutely do that. That is my goal, to stay true and to stay uh, respectful of surfing, because surfing gave me so much, and it's sacred to me. So I want to I wanna respect that sanctity. You've got to be and, diversified. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to do Like I always had... You have to make a living, so you always have to have some sort of income coming in. I always had real estate, you know, you know, help help to pay the bills. I was always working, doing something, but always focused. You know, even if I was the, being a caretaker, I was able to surf every day, so I was the caretaker. It was perfect. Right. Wonderful. It's, it's just taking the opportunities that come come in front of you, and some of you like you pass up, and some you sh you do. Just making that move. That was a little history lesson with Tony Caramonico. If you'd like to be on the Coopcast or know anybody else who'd like to, send me an email, info at thesurfcontinuum.com.